0: Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rui, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Dubin of 538 and elsewhere, and we start out with his really interesting new Aaron Gordon piece, and then we talk about the Nuggets more broadly, and of course get into plenty of topics regarding which teams in the West and East we trust, the basics of the playoff picture, trade deadline, and a lot more. This episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. If you use the CLNS50 promo code, you get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit, this episode runs about uh, 50 minutes, something in that range, and lots of great stuff in here. I
1: hope you really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you.
0: You and I always have plenty to talk about, but the place I want to start is the piece that came out, you and I are recording this on Friday, I think it came out like hours ago on Aaron Gordon and his career year so far, and I, I thought it was fascinating for a couple of different reasons. One of them, which we'll get into a later point, is the one of the biggest values of star players is putting... Other players in positions to succeed. Mm-hmm. But it's also just, I, I, I liked the element of it that it's a, a player who has had, you know, who was drafted high and everything else, being willing to take on a very different role on a very successful
1: team. Yeah. I mean, basically Gordon's season that he's having right now is pretty much what everybody envisioned would happen if he got traded to Denver and was happening in those first, I think it was like nine games after he got traded to Denver before Jamal Murray tore his acl a couple of years ago and they i think they went like seven and two in those games and they were just absolutely demolishing teams when it was you know Jokic, murray gordon and porter on the court together and the same thing is happening this year and basically being on the same team as nicole Jokic is allowing aaron gordon to just do the stuff he does well instead of trying to be you know back in 2016 zach lowe wrote this story about the magic And as part of that story, there was this whole thing on Aaron Gordon and how he was going to take on more ball handling responsibility. And he said, like, I'm going to be like a third guard and uh, I'll have much bigger ball handling responsibility. I'm all for that. Frank Vogel was comparing him in that story to Paul George. And it was like, no, that's the wrong way to go. Gordon needs to be like a play finisher that is all over the place on defense and sort of like fills in the gaps. That's the best way to use him, and that's basically exactly what's happening this year, and that was kind of the thrust of the story.
0: There is this kind of concept of the for the frontier of usage and efficiency, and so the idea is basically the more usage you take on most players, not all players, get a lot less efficient, and it goes in the reverse too. And there's an element that that level of – that analysis doesn't include, which is self-created versus – let's call it teammate-created is a phrasing mm-hmm. that we can do there, and so for Gordon – it still takes work to do what he does. Like I, I think sometimes that gets underappreciated. It's the like, oh, if you score with the ball in your hands, that makes you a superstar. It, it certainly can. Being able to find your spots and still have a significant role in the offense when functionally very few plays are called for you is also unusual.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I one of the stats I had in the store is basically he's less involved, like directly in actions than ever. Like he's in forty three point nine actions per one hundred possessions, like we took all of his isolations, post up pick and roll ball handler, pick and roll screener, off ball screens, dribble handoffs, and added all those things up. And that forty three point nine is the same number he had as a rookie. And we're going back a few years ago, seventy three point three actions per one hundred possessions at the highest. But what's interesting is despite not really having all these plays run for him, his usage rate is not even that much lower. Right. It's it's still an above average usage rate. I think He's at like 21% usage down from his high, I think was somewhere around like 24 or 25. So he's still an above average usage rate. He's still making a lot of stuff happen. It's just sort of, on the backside of actions or you know on the fringes of actions like if jokic and murray run a pick and roll he ducks into the lane or you know if jokic is posting up and somebody goes to double him he cuts directly underneath the basket and jokic finds him for a dunk like it's all this stuff that puts to use his athleticism and like the way he's he's a very smart offensive player um and he's able to find these creases in the defense for for cuts and for duck ins and for all these different things where he can use his size and his strength and his length and his athleticism to score instead of having to use like his ball handling which is not his best skill Exactly. And
0: Gordon's ability defensively also makes a lot of the other things work. And so what what a way of describing that is the combination. So I'll do first just Jokic, Gordon, Murray, and KCP with any fifth, and then I'll add in the fifth that they intend. So first, with just those four, clean the glass net rating of plus 15.3. With, with We're talking like over 800 minutes here. Like We're not talking small sample size here. And then if you narrow that to the intended five, which is with Michael Porter Jr.'s the fifth, That's about half of those possessions or minutes plus 16.2 net rating. And a part of why that works is yes elite offense like they've been very very good so far a 125 offensive rating 1.25 points per possession whichever way you prefer that but also they've been above average on defense and that's not with opponent shooting luck generally they've been about even from three and it's they're not fouling a ton they're doing a pretty good job on the defensive glass and while Jokic isn't the greatest rim protector they have these other pieces like Aaron Gordon to either reduce the number of rim attempts there are and also to mitigate some of those
1: yeah the big thing for them defensively is their length between KCP, Gordon, even Michael Porter, who is not necessarily what you call a plus defender, he's still 6'10 with ridiculously long arms. And then even when they had to downsize one of those spots to Bruce Brown, he's six four, but he has, I think, like a 6'10 wingspan or something like that. He just has ridiculously long arms. So despite not having, you know, the sort of apex rim protector and then Jamal Murray, a lot of times is, you know, a negative defender at the point of attack. They have all these guys that can cover for them with their athleticism and their length and their versatility. And that's sort of the way they're able to stay afloat on defense. And and Gordon is, if not the biggest key, then certainly one of the two biggest keys to that with him and KCP, just because of all the different guys that he can guard and he's able to take Some of the most difficult matchups. One of the stats I had was that, you know, B Ball Index has their, you know, matchup difficulty and their matchup versatility stats. And there are 306 players who have played at least 500 minutes this year. Gordon's 37th in matchup difficulty. So basically in the top 10%. And then he's one of only 25 players who have guarded every position, point guard, shooting guard, small forward, power forward, center, on at least 12% of their half-court positions. And he's one of only seven players on both of those lists. In other words, he's like one of the most versatile, high-level matchup defenders. And that obviously is something that really helps them a lot. Exactly. And
0: that's something that... That not too many players can do. And it's something that not that many players can do as well as Aaron Gordon is doing it, which is also, of course, extremely important. On the kind of the last thing on the Nuggets front, at least for now, is how are you feeling about them as a championship contender? I talked about how their best lineups have been running through everyone. The, the bench units have gotten better. Like they were all time horrendous in the early part of the year. That's improved. It's a part of how the Nuggets went on this run and now have a 36 and 16 record as we record this podcast. Do you think of them as a top-tier contender? Is it one of those, like, I'll believe it when I see it in the playoffs? Like, how are you... I'll I'll tell how I'm feeling about it, but I'm I'm more interested in yours.
1: No, I mean, I picked them to win the title before the season, so I definitely am in on them as a top-tier contender. I do think they could use another like perimeter defender that's a little bit bigger than Bruce Brown. Like if they have the lineups where it's like they need defense, so they don't want Porter out there, but it's somebody that's just like too big for Brown to handle. I don't know who the guy they turn to for that matchup is right now. I'm assuming, you know, like so for example, if they play the Celtics, they're gonna put Gordon on either Tatum or Brown. Who is the guy they put on the other one? I I think Bruce Brown we saw last year is a little bit too small for both of those guys. And I don't think that christian brown is necessarily ready for that type of role yet um so i want to know who that one guy is and it's interesting to me that bones is sort of seemingly readily available Mm -hmm. for the taking from anybody that wants him i think that that's a you know obviously a pretty good piece to be able to get whoever that guy is going to be um i want to know who it is but that's the one thing that i would like Not necessarily hold me back from picking them. I still think they're one of the very small handful of best teams in the league, and obviously they have the best record in the West. I think they have the second or third best record in the league right now, Um, and I'm really, really high on them. I do think that that's something they could use, though, is like a guy in between Gordon and Brown size that they could use on sort of bigger big wings.
0: It's a great point, and it's something that would make me more comfortable about Denver. Their offense is great. Jokic is unbelievable. He's done very well against lots of different stars, lots of different matchups in the playoffs. And while the Nuggets have never made the NBA Finals, they did have that run in the bubble to the Conference Finals, including beating the Clippers. And defensively, there are certain players, there are certain teams that will give them trouble. A part of why I'm feeling more comfortable about their chances in the West is that... Nobody's really putting it all together as a kind of team that can defend everyone, that could score on everybody. I'm feeling more comfortable with the Grizzlies doing that all the time, and who knows, somebody's going to break out of that middle group in the West, and not only by record, but by play, and be like, oh, okay, they're there. And also, that presumably means they'll have closer to even seating with the Nuggets. And so, it'll be interesting, but I am getting more comfortable with it, in part because when you think about the best iterations of this Denver team, and you brought up the Jamal Murray injury and that 7-2 and two record, They've handled that. And like I I was impressed with how they you know, overall how they played against the Warriors last year despite being shorthanded, Jokic is Jokic. So we'll have to see. And I think that's a good tie in kind of to thinking about thinking about the rest of the West, thinking about where the league is going and I posited this idea last week with Keith Smith of, like, the lack of sellers and, you know, what the Bulls and Raptors are going to do, that's been a frequent point of discussion. The lack of buyers is also significant, and I think part of that is you have teams like the Grizzlies and, well, the Pelicans have stepped off a bit, and even to a lesser extent the Celtics, who believe in their young cores and don't think they necessarily need to add anything. And then there are also teams that just don't really have a ton in the way of resources, so that's a part of why we're not – I don't think we're going to see the dramatic shifts either. It's, it's the players that are available. It's the teams that aren't selling and the teams that aren't buying.
1: Yeah, I mean I guess we still have what uh, a little bit less than a week until the actual deadline and they always say deadline spur action and obviously some more things can happen over this next week or so. I do think like, you know, Toronto now they're they're 23 and 30. Like if they're not selling, what are they doing? Like the idea that they're going to suddenly leap up into, you know, the upper echelon of the Eastern Conference at this point just seems a little bit far fetched. Um and I do think there are buyers, but I'm not sure how aggressive the buyers are at this point. Like New Orleans probably wants to buy, but when is Zion coming back? Should you be all that aggressive if you don't know when he's going to be on the court again? Phoenix probably wants to buy, but they've got to sell something in order to buy. And, like, who is buying high on Aiton at this point? Like, I don't I don't think his value is at its highest, but they're not going to sell him low probably, right? And like, who's giving them anything for Jay Crowder at this point. But I I think that part of that is also what gives me confidence in the Nuggets. Like Memphis, I'm still like a little bit worried about the half court offense. Sacramento, I'm obviously worried about the defense. And then there are so many teams where it's like, who is the best team out of Dallas and the Clippers and the Wolves and the Suns and the Warriors and the Pelicans, and the Blazers and the Lakers and the Jazz and the Thunder. Like, I don't know who the best team at, like which team should the Nuggets be scared of out of that group? doesn't seem like any of them all necessarily right now.
0: The Pelicans are such a challenging case because I can imagine David Griffin really wants to see this group together. And also, they have just so many resources, but doing bigger stuff likely requires, just in terms of salary matching, probably one of their bigger players. They can do some stuff to get up there, but then you have to think about where things are going from there. And also, like it's just until you see this group together, they had success last year, but that was without Zion. They've had success this year, but it was mostly without Ingram, of... What do we need around those players if you haven't seen them together? And you can make these conceptual adjustments, but part of it is also who is available, who, who checks those boxes. I brought up Miles Turner for years as a fit there just because he could space the floor but also protect the rim. They could also do upgrades on spots they already kind of have filled if you want to, but generally those are costly. You know, like theoretically going from Herb Jones to OG Ananobi, that would probably make them better, especially with the way teams have... A, have helped off of herb jones but you're not going to just do that for free that's going to cost you multiple firsts
1: did did turner go to the pelicans in the mock deadline which was done before uh the i believe
0: he did i'm trying to remember i was i was turner's agent but not his not trading him i believe that he did and it was funny we yeah we negotiated that deal roughly an hour before the renegotiation extension came in
1: i remember that it was like there or dallas or i can't remember
0: i think he i think it ended up being here i the final terms of the mock trade deadline trade spoilers to any of those who haven't Listen to it, yet he did end up going to the Pelicans for Valachutis, Devontae Graham, and two first-run
1: picks. Would have been a nice fit, but obviously that's not happening anymore.
0: But... At, at least for this point in time. Like, the, Turner's, the Turner situation, um, him... So, technically speaking, he's still trade-eligible. I don't expect it, especially because of how open he and the Pacers were at that announcement press conference. After this year, I think the Pacers are just going to have to see where they are.
1: Yeah, I mean, like... It's not like he's super old, so he's outside the timeline of, you know, like Halliburton and Benedict Matherin. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not like he completely doesn't fit with them. He's still—I feel like he's younger than people think. He's, what, 26? Turns 27 in a few weeks. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not like he's on the downslope of his career. These next few years should probably be his prime, especially for a center where they tend to peak in, like, their late 20s.
0: Turner also has the you know he's having one of his best seasons if not his best season offensively defensively it it gets hard to apportion credit and blame. probably not his best season defensively uh and so you can see the positives coming there are, are injury risks for him but there are injury risks for almost everybody and i i don't know that i think of his it's not like in some ways like porzingis where it's this unbelievably tall guy and they just generally have lower body issues as they get deeper into their nba career turners more like the 6'10, 6'11 type so yeah i could see that and I, I was the Mavs tried to negotiate for him, and I, I think that would be a compelling fit as well. But turner you know part of the pacers approach here is to have him for their own purposes at a lower price for 23 24 24 25 it also does make him more tradable so i think it's i think he stays there for the rest of the season the pacers likewise kind of figure out what spend the rest of this year figuring out what they have and then maybe you know like if they need to make moves to align with that vision in the summer of 23 then they
1: will do so <sighs> Yeah, there's there's some time for them, I would say, um, especially given the injury stuff this year. Like, I don't know if, if Zion was still playing. Uh, I, first of all, I imagine they wouldn't be um, 26 and 27, which they are right now. I think they've now they've lost like a bunch of games in a row, um, two, four, six, eight, ten losses in a row. Obviously, Zion's been out for those as well as uh, a few more games, um, and it would be more interesting to me for them to sort of push to make a big deal if if he was not hurt. Obviously,
0: that makes sense. And also, yeah, I brought up the evaluation element for them too. Of just you, you want to see these best players together. You want to see what kind of what kind of matchups can they do? And also, the Pelicans, more so than almost any other good team, have a lot of players that could be very useful in specific matchups. They have good point-of-attack defenders, like Jose Alvarado, who could be useful. Herb Jones, if if a team has a player that you really need Herb Jones on, you can make that work. The spacing can be a little bit wonky. And then, of course, at the big-man spots, you could go Valchunas-Zion, you could go Nance-Zion, you could go Zion-5. All of those iterations could work, and Ingram fits into a lot of that as well. So they want to kind of see where all of those different permutations, combinations can go, unless the right player becomes available, and I don't think that's going to happen.
1: One of the nice things about the Pelicans is they have, like, all these different wings. So even if they trade a couple of these guys, it's like, okay, let's say you trade, um, just as an example, like Dyson Daniels and Herb Jones. Well, they still have Trey Murphy. They still have Najee Marshall. They still, you know, technically, I guess, have Ingram, even though he's not the same kind of player. But they can can trade two of those guys and still have two left, you know? So it's, it's a nice to be able to deal from that surplus if you are looking to make a deal.
0: I would say it's doing a great job throwing your resources, rolling the dice with wing-sized players, which is true, but I don't, I'm do not i not completely sure that the Pelicans were just rolling the dice here. I mean, they've done an extremely good job scouting and developing those players, and so... I was less sold on Daniel's, basically it was really the three-point shot, and so the idea that he would have to be an off-ball player, but he's doing all the four game off-ball stuff un- unusually well for a rookie, and then Herb Jones, of course, has his unusual strength, like be just having great length, and he moves really well, and had really good defensive instincts as a rookie, so they've, they've done well. I, I like Trey in Summer League his first year, and then now he's getting more of a chance to blossom, so you're right they have more at those spaces than that and that does provide latitude and it especially provides it if theoretically that upgrade in that general position area comes from a team that doesn't want to tear all the way down you know that wants it because those players could help theoretical trade partner X quite a bit
1: everybody always needs more wings um, so, so having a bunch of them. I would say yes, is extremely helpful.
0: Is there any team, so we know the very prohibitive favorite top two in the West is going to be the Nuggets and the Grizzlies in either order, probably considering the swoon by by the Grizz, the Nuggets in first place, still have plenty of season left, but that's where things are going. Outside of that group, what is there a team that you think is the most dangerous come playoff time time is there a team that you think will make a push towards the top of this by the end of the regular season they don't have to be the same but just kind of like who are you thinking has the most breakout potential
1: Hmm. maybe the clippers if they make some sort of deal before the deadline which they should like if they figure something out uh at point guard that could work or even like an upgrade on the Marcus Morris, Nick Batum, whoever the heck else they use at that other big wing spot next to Kawhi and PG, like if, if they can get something that is a you know, a significant real upgrade at one of those spots using you know Canard and whoever else's contracts they have, and can they actually include a first round pick at some point? I feel like they probably can't. Um,
0: if you go out far enough, I believe they can, because um, they're yeah, maybe they're,
1: like twenty twenty nine or something. Yes, let me.
0: They could do a twenty eight or a twenty nine, but not both.
1: Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, if they, if they could figure something out there, then uh, then I think they probably have the the best breakout potential. Um, I, I keep thinking like a team like the the Warriors is going to get going, and then they keep like losing stupid games. Um, So, I mean, I'm, I'm always wary of counting them out, but we're what, two thirds of the way through the season and there's still 500. And I don't really, I still don't really have a ton of confidence in the bench units. Um, So I'm not really sure what to do with them.
0: They're a good team to illustrate what I see as the split between regular season success and playoff success. They haven't provided enough consistency this year. I mean, they've had, I think it Anthony Slater had this, I think it's seven road losses where they were up double digits in the fourth quarter. And that, in part, you could say, well, Steph Curry usually sits for the first five to six minutes of the fourth. And so you have one of those stretches where they often hemorrhage points. That's true. Also, they've given some of those games away, and that, that happens as well. So I've largely, it. largely—they're helped by nobody other than those two teams running and hiding, but my expectation is that this Warriors team is not consistent enough to have a really good seed. However, they tie in with this larger concept that I'm kind of growing accustomed to in the West, which is— I think that the early rounds can go any direction. Like you know, for example, the Warriors or the Clippers. I think they could beat anyone, even from a from a inferior seat. Like they could win a road game seven. They could win a series before that. But picking a team, should any of those teams be in the 5-8 through range, to actually make the NBA Finals, it's extremely rare for a reason. Because you have to win a lot of these tough series. You're still facing really good opposition. Like, you could get lucky somewhere. And so I, I have this pet theory right now that we're going to see upsets. It's going to be maybe kind of like the NCAA tournament where we'll see upsets. But the team that eventually makes it out will be a stronger seed.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're coming from the bottom of the bracket, it's not like you just have to beat the Nuggets or just have to beat the Grizzlies. You probably got to beat both of them and another team. like
0: All, all of which being the having Road Game 7s and everything else.
1: Right. It's just it's, – it's very difficult uh, to come from the bottom of the bracket and make it in just because – You're going to be playing against better teams in all likelihood in every round. Um, And I I think it was Zach Lowe who said on his podcast where he was like, you know, do the Lakers have a a punching chance against one of these guys in the playoffs? Maybe, but they don't just have to punch one of them. They got to punch all of them, you know, and it's, it's just really difficult to do that.
0: It's a brutally tough gauntlet, and especially like you—you you can argue it both ways. And so there's the idea that top-heavy teams can do well because if they're, you know, they can play the, their best guys a higher proportion of the minutes. Ensembles generally suffer because they also have to be ensembles. Typically, have to be healthy. Like this was part of the argument against the Bulls last year. But top heavy teams, those specific players have to be healthy long enough, and like so for yeah i agree I agree with Zach, I agree with you that the Lakers could beat a lot of different teams, but I think back to that you know that twenty one playoff run where they could. I think they would have beaten the Suns if they had stayed, if Anthony Davis hadn't gotten hurt, but he did, and so arguing that then they could have stayed healthy and gotten through another three rounds—that's a lot to ask.
1: Yeah, especially these older teams, it's it's really difficult at this point to stay healthy through three, four rounds of the playoffs. Sure, and uh, the Lakers obviously are—I don't think they're the oldest team. I think the Bucks are the oldest team in the league this year. Uh, yeah, they are. Wow, well, they're almost a full year older than the Lakers, and actually the Clippers are the second oldest team. Is that followed. scaling
0: for playing time?
1: Yeah, uh, by minutes-weighted age. The Bucks are the oldest, followed by the Clippers, followed by the Nets and Lakers.
0: You could also argue that the Bucks' minute-weighted age is actually underselling things because of how much time Chris Middleton has missed. Right,
1: yeah. I mean, they've been given, or they haven't been giving, but they gave a bunch of time earlier in the season to, you know, like Wara and Bochamp who are guys that Play a decent amount, but not more than Chris Middleton, obviously.
0: Lots more to talk about with Jared Dubin, but first a message from betonline.ag. BetOnline remains your number one source for all your Super Bowl betting this season. Get analysis of every play, prop, and point at BetOnline. You'll find the latest odds, team matchup information, player news, and game trends at BetOnline. With betting options for everything from the national anthem to the halftime show and even the Gatorade bath. BetOnline is your Super Bowl headquarters this season. So head to the website today, or use your mobile device, and don't forget to use the promo code CLNS50 to receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. And you can check out the most comprehensive Super Bowl information on the web. reminder to use the promo code CLNS50 to receive your rewards at betonline.ag, where the game starts. Let's go to the East and uh, we talked you know you brought up the Bucks just a bit ago. We've seen strong stretches of play from the Sixers, the Nets, at times the Bucs as well and the and the Celtics. And I mean, I don't want to I don't want to diminish the Cavs in this conversation like I they could do a lot, it's just that they don't have quite the same level of playoff experience. Do you think the Celtics are cut kind of above? Is it really or is it more kind of everybody's conference?
1: I want to see how Middleton holds up injury-wise over the next few weeks before I say the Celtics are, like, definitively a cut above. Um, Obviously, we saw what happened in the playoff series last year without Middleton, and it was pretty damn close. And it's incredibly difficult for anybody to deal with Giannis over a seven-game series. Um, Intrigued by what the Sixers look like recently, but, I mean, this is not an original thought. I just don't trust them. Uh, On really any level. Um, So yeah, I mean, I want to see how Middleton holds up these next few weeks, but Boston and Milwaukee seem like a a little bit ahead of the rest of the group to me. Are are you in the same spot?
0: Yes, especially because of the presence of Giannis. I love Joel Embiid, and then KD is his own thing, but... Giannis bends everything to his will, honestly, on both ends of the floor, and I would love for the Bucs to have one or two more players that I could really trust in their playoff rotation ideally step into the closing five. That's a lot to ask. We'll see if it can actually happen at the deadline, but as you mentioned, last year without one of their best players, they still gave the Celtics a really good run. Boston if they come into the playoffs full strength, they have they can do a lot of things defensively. They have good enough foundations offensively, and so I think I would I think they I would have them as the expected winner. But they had at times a a fortunate run last year. They they were the you know the best team over that closing stretch, but also they faced an injured injured iteration of the Heat, an injured iteration of the Bucks. And some of the offensive flaws that they showed against the Warriors, like the Warriors demonstrate those things more than most opponents do, but I could see some of the turnover, some of the inconsistency rearing its head against these these Eastern opponents, depending on how things bear out.
1: Yeah, that's what I like to call Celtic bullshit, is like when Marcus Smart is out there throwing the ball to nobody or throwing passes that he has no business doing, or uh, Jalen Brown literally looking at a defender and throwing him the ball uh, basically, any of those guys' turnovers, uh, I describe as Celtic bullshit, and that's the kind of thing that we could see every now and then. Hi, Bodie. Okay, my dog is trying to join the conversation now. Um, <laughs> do you want to come up? Okay. Um, yeah, well, let, let's
0: let, no, let's <laughs> let's go to let's go to a team that has, for reasons, a dog as one of their mascots, the Cavs, and. Cleveland, Wait, the Cavs have a dog mascot? They have two mascots, one of which is a dog. I can't remember the dog's name. Yes. This is one That's of the things you learn when strange. you cover the finals there like five years in a row. Um,
1: I would not have guessed that the Cavs would have a dog mascot. His name is Moondog. Does he carry a sword?
0: No, the ca- the guy who looks more like a cavalier carries a sword, I believe. Um, but so the Cavs right now, using the cleaning glass iteration of the stat, they're fourth in net rating largely fueled by that defense. And Cleveland, I see the theory of it. I mean, I love the idea of having two dominant offensive players together because the idea that you brought this up with Denver in terms of not having enough defenders and Denver has both KCP, and that was more for wings. But how are you going to devote your resources defensively when a team has both Garland and Mitchell on the floor? And they have this defensive foundation with Allen and Mobley plus they have different players at other spots they could do they still don't have a full solution at the three and so I'm of two thoughts with them one is if they don't solve this small forward problem how am I going to buy in fully and then the other one is the I'll believe it when I see it where the theory of this team makes sense to me and they I could see them having trouble with the playoffs but i trouble making trouble for other teams in the playoffs however there are complications with a your first real time in that heat, and it's not for every cab, but it is for many of them, and the v- quality of opposition that they would face night in, night out. Like that's a big adjustment too. So I'm kind of like they're they're in some ways like the West, where it's like I could see them beating teams, but winning beating everyone without having done it before seems like a lot to ask.
1: Yeah, I am sort of of two minds. I think they pretty clearly have the talent to play with anybody in the playoffs. I am, like you are, worried about that three spot. And then another thing is I kind of think Mitchell might still be hurt. Um, If you look at the shooting numbers over the last like month and a half or so, since let me look it up since uh since December 23rd he is shooting 41 percent from the field and 32 percent from three and that's with the 71 point game included in that stretch and another game that he went off for 46 in that stretch and in those two games combined he was uh 36 of 61 from the field and 14 of 33 from three so the shooting numbers over the last month or so have been really bad and i'm wondering if that what was it his hip or his groin uh is sort of still bothering him and affecting him to some level and if he's not the guy he was for the first eight ten weeks of the season that obviously considerably changes things for them you know in in that stretch he was 50% from the field, 43% from three, 30 points a game instead of 23 a game. And some of that is he had this outrageous, like off the dribble shooting performance early on that was, you know, never going to keep up, but I think some of it might be that injury affecting him a little bit over these last few weeks.
0: I hadn't thought about it. It does seem like he's been a little bit affected, but the stats on that are fascinating. I hadn't, I I mean, I noticed that he wasn't playing to a standard, but it's the benefit of having your best stretch at the beginning of the year that lingers with, I, I try to, you know, look at players with fresh eyes every time I see them, but there is an element of it that's in place. That's a very important note. And the good news is we're more than two months from the playoffs. So even if he's dealing with something now, hopefully, It can be rectified in some way, shape, or form. Maybe the All-Star break can help with that, though, of course, he will be present in that, assuming nothing hopefully happens between now and then. Is there anybody below those top five that, you know, we talked about this kind of with the top two after the top two in the West. I I mean, there are obviously teams that have had success in the playoffs before, like the Heat and the Hawks below them. Is there anybody that you think would put a scare into those top five in a playoff series? (laughs)
1: I don't know about a scare. I mean, I guess it depends on what we define as a scare. I think there are, like, the Knicks size could be a problem for, um, eh. I mean, I guess maybe Cleveland just because they're a team that has those two bigs. But, I mean, I would still pick Cleveland. Um, Miami, I wouldn't count out Jimmy or Bam. Like, I I don't know that anybody below Miami is, like, I think they're going to win a first-round series. Um, Yeah, I I don't think so necessarily. (laughs)
0: They look more like teams to me that can take a couple of games rather than likely to take the series. Other than Miami, I, I'm still—they're not as extreme as the Clippers, where I feel like I'm always being let us, I'm always I'm always buy, selling myself on them. But Miami, it's just like the theory of the case. If they can put everything together, they've had these weird seasons from all of their shooter players and Jimmy and Bam. You know, they they had a stretch in the beginning of the season where they weren't really both available. Like I still believe that the Heat can defend at a high level because obviously they have for. Long stretches of the year, and I think their offense can be good enough. So I'd have them as an exception, and especially, I mean, the series that could linger with me is a the- which actually is what would be lined up right now: a Philly Miami series. It would be weird. Both teams have have elements that kind of negate the other team's strengths and exacerbate their weaknesses. But like this element that I'm just not totally sold on Philly's defense because of the some of the lineups that they play, like. That's actually in some ways you could argue could be a bigger problem against somebody else, but it's just like how are they going to handle that against every opponent? Like, There's just, there's an element of Philly that I, I will – I believe in what they can do well, but I'm just always like is it going to work against the best of the best? So Miami could be a problem for them. Yeah, I, I
1: just flat out I don't trust Philly. Like <laughs> we've, we've seen enough – over these last few years i'm not going to trust them until i see them actually do it and you know sixers fans can complain about that if they want to uh i don't really care you guys should have been voting for joel Embiid more often to make the all-star game instead of complaining about patrick mahomes winning mvp and then he would be starting instead of being a reserve and we would not have to hear all this complaining on twitter um yeah sorry um but anyway miami it's weird they have all these designated shooters and they're a team that sort of still can't shoot so the worry for them is always going to be like how do they create offense in the half court unless it's jimmy just like bullying his way through everybody and obviously bam has stepped up offensively throughout this season but i i still have some worries about them as an offense in the playoffs um you know to go along with you know you might have defensive worries uh about philly
0: just briefly on this point, if you go through the highest volume three point shooters per thirty six minutes for the Heat, like Duncan Robinson shooting thirty three percent, Struess thirty four, Heroes at thirty seven. That that part's better. Vincent at thirty three. Like you ex- you expect and hope one of those players to, or multiple of those players to be much higher up because that's a what they've done in the past and everything else. And so if somebody gets back there, like I, I think of Struess as the most likely because Robinson the limitations are and also he's of course been dealing with injury. So but. You're right that somebody has to do something because otherwise, you know, like we brought up Memphis's half-court offense as a concern. Miami's can be a concern as well, of course.
1: Yeah, I mean, especially like if – I mean, Caleb Martin's shooting well from threes. Like the only yes. – him and Hero are the, really the only guys. Um, but if they, they have a lot of stuff that like needs those designated shooters to space the floor. And obviously that hasn't been – like they haven't had one of those guys in the starting lineup for a while now because it's been – Uh, You know, Martin, Butler, Lowry, Hero, and Bam. Strew started a bunch of games earlier in the year where I think they had Martin coming off the bench, but some of that was with Jimmy out, and some of it was with Hero out, and some of it was with Lowry out. I just... They've got, like six, maybe seven guys that I trust on the floor. And I probably don't like, I probably trust Lowry in my head more than I should based on the way that he's played this year. Um, but you know, the, the Heat are never going to be satisfied. So maybe they do something at the deadline.
0: They could. Miami also is in a very difficult cap tax situation for next year and whether they want to solve that problem now or wait Andy Ellsberg is the best in the business at solving those problems when they come in
1: but I'm good giving Andy Ellisberg credit instead of Pat Riley I think more people <laughs> should do that no one should give Pat Riley any credit for anything if you ask me that's just an opinion but there, there also
0: right. might have been a tactical decision on my part, not to mention a certain PR name around you, because I know how that, <laughs> how those things can go. You decided to interpret it anyway, and that's fine. But yeah, they could they could do something. Whether that's now, whether that's later, and. Miami, another another team that I, I I wish they could have gotten a greater sense of the theory of the case before the deadline. But they're older, so there's more time pressure to to say, hey, we didn't get to see everything we wanted to, but we have to make we have to make a decision anyway. Whereas the Pelicans and a few others can just say, this is a young core, we can we can see the rest of this year, and the opportunity cost isn't as severe.
1: Yeah, plus like Miami. They always figure it out cap wise. I'm not like worried about their cap tax situation next like if they make a move, they're gonna know that that they can make it work financially like this is a team that two off seasons in a row, came into the offseason with no cap space and landed like the biggest available free agents. Right. So like, uh, I don't know how they do it. They're they're like the New Orleans Saints of the NFL where the Saints come into every offseason. They're like $50 million over the cap somehow. And magically they have $30 million of cap space inside three guys. They make no sense. The Heat make no sense. I don't know how they do it.
0: I want to end this. Well, we'll se- second to end this with uh, a question for you. So I I mentioned a little bit of it on the pod a couple of weeks ago. Um, Nate and I were doing 1560s and stuff about this, I had this pet theory that both, that especially Orlando could eventually work their way into the play and mix, just the idea that they were closer in quality to the, to the teams in that area, and then the way OKC played, and I mean now they've just done it mathematically, like they're just in the area now of, of getting in. Do you think the – I mean some of it could be involved in the trade line and stuff. Do you think either the Magic or the Thunder have a realistic chance of making it into the play-in?
1: Um, I'd say the Thunder have a more realistic chance just because like they're closer. Yes, Um, There are more teams that they're competing with, though, so that does make it a little bit difficult. Uh, But I also think the Magic are going to be more motivated to make it, and therefore might be more likely to make a trade that helps them this season. So sort of competing interests there. Like the Thunder are better and closer, but the Magic don't have as many teams that are going to be like hyper interested in making the playoffs to pass. And I think that their front office is significantly more likely to make a win now move.
0: It's a great point. And I, I wonder about how Weltman and the Magic front office are going to interpret what has happened this season. Like there's a lot that I would be positive about, but the larger point you brought up This is a really interesting thing. So since December 1st, the Thunder are 15 and 14, and the Magic are 15 and 15. So they actually have very similar records. But the Thunder did so with a plus 1.7 net rating, and the Magic did so with a negative 1.4, which means, you know, that that you would generally, generally, and there's a lot of other context you could get into if, in terms of opponent health and shooting and opponent shooting and all that type of stuff. But generally speaking, I believe more in what OKC has done, you know, like the, the sample. The sample is stronger for them to potentially get in. The question, like, I mean, what en- might end up hurting the Magic beyond being further behind is also the idea that These teams aren't selling as much as you could say they structurally should just because of who's making the decisions and that being, you know, trying for the play in is more desirable for them than it would be for me. So like maybe if you know the the Raptors and the Bulls and a couple of these teams don't sell, well, then it's going to be way harder for the magic to pass them from where they are.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, the Thunder also like they have the best player on either of the two teams, and obviously that really helps.
0: It does, and also Shea. You know, to tie this back to the very beginning of the podcast, that Shea Gildas Alexander, his amazing driving and the fluidity of his game, it makes life easier on his teammates, and so you can you can elevate a lot of you can elevate a lot of players that way. And the other striking thing for the Thunder is they've been playing this well defensively. So I've been using. December 1st, that's just the date. It's not like that started a hot streak for them or anything. That's just a date I picked. Um, They're 11th in, in defense during just that stretch. And then overall, the Thunder are 11th too they but the recent stretch why I focused on that a because I already had it pulled but B they've been doing a lot of that without the players that we would consider centers on the roster Robinson Earl's been out since mid-december Poku's been out for a while so it's been Mocal at the five it's been Kendrick Williams at the five and Jalen Williams the taller Jalen Williams mm. as well and so
1: I think that uh, Poku being out has probably helped um,
0: defensively yeah it might <laughs> have I'd, I'd be I'll look at those splits
1: at some point after we finish recording but I, I do like what they're doing at center Sem- Right now, though, like yes. when they they play a big guy, they start um i don't know if he's j will or j dub but the the non-santa clara jalen williams at center and when they play a smaller team they start cambridge, cambridge williams at center i i kind of like the way they're matching that up right now in the absence of having a center and obviously when they have chet next year you would think that he's going to be the guy starting at center if they can get like a big wing to go with shea giddy jalen williams santa clara version and chet like my god Um, it's just going to be so much fun. I mean, it's going to be so much fun to watch those dudes anyway. But if you add like that specific archetype of player to that group, man, like you're, you're, you're already really cooking with gas, but you might have like two gas stoves going (laughs) at once or something
0: you could also see the thunder getting a more traditional rim protector for some lineups like the idea of you want one of those players to play 20 to 25 minutes a game I think that would really I'm not going to say raise the floor of their defense because Mark Degnault, like the floor of this defense is pretty high in the first place but it could it could make it really compelling and one question that you have with Shea I mean a Shea like Donovan Mitchell and a few others deserves a lot of credit for how much more bought in he is on defense this year than previously and that's made a big difference too is how does that change what you want around them do you do you want like because i would love to see the thunder really get a point of attack defender like so to to gum up some of the actions and you brought up the mix and match concept of the do you start- count
1: lou dort as that guy
0: i like lou dort actually on on bigger players more like, he can navigate screens reasonably well but i don't love 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 that part of his game maybe it's just the film that i've seen on it like you know i like, i'll do more at some point but do you like him on point of attack stuff
1: it depends on the guy. I guess if it's, like, bigger guards. So, yeah, sort of the same thing.
0: Yeah, somebody to guard those really quick kind of water buggy guys would be useful for them. And But the beauty of The beauty of like the amount of resources they have is they could get once they've identified those needs they can just throw assets at it if they want to and they just have so many that functions in a way as an asset consolidation deal if you can do it or ideally you could just like draft them with your own picks you can sign them with your own cap space that makes it even easier
1: yeah they could trade like five picks and still have I don't know twenty seven future first round picks left over
0: well that was that's the kind of in some ways the funniest thing about these asset rich teams particularly in the like the because they and I do this thing of rank like kind of ranking the future at first run picks held and so many of them are by the Thunder the Pelicans the Jazz and a couple other teams like the Spurs and so like with with Oklahoma City like there was a stretch time where it's like oh you know like they're gonna get a mint for trading Shea and now it's like they should use their already existing mint to get their own second Shea like as opposed to as opposed to going in that direction the Pels are of course in the same boat as well and I don't think Any of those teams are going to cash in right now, but at some point they have to, and it's going to be wild.
1: Yeah, the Thunder kind of have like last season Cavs vibes. Like I could see them making their version of the Mitchell trade. Yeah. Next summer.
0: I don't know who it is, but I'm I'm already excited about the possibility. Beyond the trade deadline, you know, I like to end this with what are you going to be watching for over the next couple of weeks? And I guess you can include the deadline if you want, but what what's what's sticking out to you as like something you want to learn better or somebody you just want to watch?
1: Uh, Chris Middleton is definitely at or near the top of the list, um, just because I feel like that has a dramatic effect on what the East is going to look like. Um the Grizzlies defense without Steven Adams over these next few weeks and how that looks like, can they go to more small ball stuff when they get into the playoffs and like, um, and then I, I guess it's just kind of deadline stuff. Um, just because that's going to change things so dramatically and what you're going to be looking at is going to change based on what teams do at the deadline. And like, when can we get KD back on the floor? When can we get some of these other guys that are still injured back on the floor? I think Devin Booker is supposed to come back next week. Uh, for the Suns. That was that
0: was where I was going to start as Phoenix. And the Suns, if Booker comes back, they have a stretch between, let's say he comes back Tuesday. That is the earliest that is reasonably possible. The stretch for them from there into the All-Star break is at Brooklyn, at Atlanta, at Indiana, then hosting the Kings and the Clippers. We will get some information on where the Suns team is, though I think they should be exceedingly Judicious with Booker, considering the the recent history of this.
1: Yeah, um, I, I would not try to overextend him. Although the the way that the where they are in playoff position right now, like I can't imagine they want to be in the plan, right? Like they're gonna. I. The, it feels like a team that's gonna be like, do you really want Chris Paul playing one or maybe two extra games in the playoffs? That doesn't seem. Ideal.
0: They're poised to go on a run just because they will have healthier players available. I've also think they've looked so there was a stretch
1: where they were really listless in part because they were missing. A yeah, lot I mean they were playing like Dwayne Washington and right. like Damian Lee getting forty minutes a night. Like,
0: yeah, exactly. Once they've gotten more back, they've looked significantly better. And like so, to me, they're the team we brought up before the teams that are poised to like either be dangerous in the playoffs or to make a run the regular season. My instinct is they're the team that makes a regular season run, and because they can be they're they've been more consistent at times than the Warriors like game to game they can beat some bad teams do well enough against the good teams and so like they can get up and maybe fight the kings and the mavs and the clippers for the four seed then that that changes how i feel about it a little
1: bit yeah i mean i want to see what happens with ayton there too like because he i don't know i mean he doesn't want to be there i think everybody knows that they don't particularly seem to want him there either so
0: (laughs) um Uh, the last one I want to mention is Jamie Lillard. Just he's been on such an unbelievable heater this last little stretch, and so I want to—I I love watching Lillard all the time, but and I'll, I'll keep watching until he stops sitting forty.
1: Yeah, he's. Uh, I, I wrote a story a couple of years ago, basically about the way that he had been combating defenses that were, you know, pressing him out high on the floor, and it was basically just he moved his pick and rolls so far back that defenses can't come out that high. It was like he's running pick and rolls 35 feet from the rim or something like that. And it's just like he has an answer for everything that you want to throw at him offensively. It's really incredible.
0: I know we could talk about plenty of other topics. You and I could do a whole trade deadline pod if we had, if we had had our had our wits about us. But I wanted to do I wanted to talk more about the league because you're so good at that. And I will thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at five thirty eight for basketball and other places. You can also check out his NFL work for CBS, which is really good. And it's also a great reason to follow him on Twitter at j a dubin five j a d u b i n and the number five because. His work can appear in different places, also has an authory page that you can check out as well, and especially with the big game coming up that he's, he's, I'm sure, going to do some very good work on that. If you want to support Real GM Radio, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe and download the show, really, whatever podcast player you use Apple, Spotify, wherever. Uh, it really helps. Real GM Radio will never come out on a specific day of the week. So, subscribing is the way to have it pop into your player whenever it's ready. It can also help other people find the show, word of mouth, social media, leaving a rating review in the podcast player for choosing. And the single most important thing you can do for this podcast and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors. For this episode, that is betonline.ag. Use the C L N S five zero promo code to tell them you came from us, but more importantly for you to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit can also check out my other work, Dunked On, Dunked On Prime, Going Strong. We actually did six episodes this week because of the segments of the mock-off season, and then we had to work through our trade deadline previews, division by division. So now we've gone through all 30 teams in that respect as well. Then the NBA strategy stream, which is Nate and I calling games on League Pass. You can watch the game listen to us. We actually have two games within the next week. We are doing Wizards-Nets on Saturday, and then we are doing thunder warriors on monday so that should be a lot of fun i'm gonna have some in quick succession and they should both be interesting notable games then i've written work at the athletic i think i've been a part of four pieces in the last week plus from breaking down the rui hachimura trade from the lakers perspective the miles turner deal trade deadline big board lots of lots of good stuff there and of course lots of wonderful colleagues at the athletic as well And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA, at gmail.com is the way to get to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I'm not the greatest at replying, but I do read everything. That's why I call it. It's feedback more than, like, I don't know, conversation or something like that, though it can be that, depending on the circumstance. And that is more than enough rambling for now, so thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day.